Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Summitry Project. All of our uh, research work, work uh, being done in the project uh, China and the West Dialogue, uh, work on um, the um, completion or and accountability of the um, sustainable development goals uh, and other uh, research efforts can all be found at the globalsymmetryproject.com website. It's my real pleasure today to invite back into the virtual studio our colleague uh, Stuart uh, Patrick. This is a Summit Dialogue um, episode 30, and it's uh, going to be a discussion with Stuart on the outcomes and impact of the Biodiversity Conference, COP15, just recently concluded in Montreal. So uh, Stuart is a senior fellow and director of the Global Order and Institution Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His primary focus is on the future of American internationalism, the requirements of effective multilateral cooperation, uh, and he is also quite focused and an expert on the history and practice of multilateralism. Stewart is the um, author of three recent books, uh, the Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World, uh, Weak Links, Fragile States, uh, Global Threats, uh, and International Security, and The Best Laid Plans, The Origins of American Multilateralism and the Dawn of the Cold War. He has written many articles and essays and reports, uh, particularly around uh, U.S. global engagement and um, United Nations and uh, other organization efforts at the uh, managing uh, global issues, uh, particularly around climate change. So it's a real pleasure to be able to bring back into the virtual studio our good friend Stuart Patrick to talk about COP15. So welcome, Stuart. It's a pleasure to have you back into the virtual studio, uh, Stuart, to talk about all these issues regarding uh, climate change and the environment and uh, two summits. Um, so welcome. Thank you very much, Alan. It's always great to be with you. Okie doke. So we were witness recently to Sharm El Sheikh, which was COP27. Uh, and uh, that uh, was followed just recently, in fact, concluding on Sunday with the COP15, which is uh, it was in Montreal, although led by China um, uh, as well. So how are these two summits related and how are they distinct? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you know, they are um, related um, uh, although uh, they've been uh, taking place along parallel tracks. Um, uh, you know, Sharm El Sheikh was obviously about reducing emissions uh, and uh, advancing a transition to a post-carbon economy, uh, including um, as well as uh, mobilizing 
new resources for adaptation and loss and damage associated with climate change uh, and its effects. Montreal was really about um, addressing a catastrophic decline in biological diversity. That is the ecosystems, uh, species, and then uh, genetic diversity um, uh, that is really afflicting the natural world. Um, and that is jeopardizing the countless benefits that we get from uh, what are sometimes called ecosystem services and uh, sort of more plainly, uh, you know, nature's benefits uh, for people. Um, the reality is that there's no conceivable way to reach uh, the Paris Agreement target of two degrees Celsius, much less lower um, than that, without what are called nature-based solutions. And that really, um, in this case, uh, refers to uh, relying on uh, species and ecosystems to serve as uh, natural carbon sinks for all of the CO2 in the atmosphere forever. Um, and that's, you know, forests, grasslands, uh, man uh, mangroves, and other healthy ecosystems. Um, obviously, there's a lot more um, that is at stake here in, uh, in preserving Earth's biodiversity. Um, but the importance of nature-based solutions has uh, increased uh, given how badly the world is doing on climate change. Because, you know, before COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, a couple of weeks before, I think it was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the, and also the United Nations Environment Program said, look, there's no conceivable pathway to get to the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, target, which had been the sort of aspirational target set back in Paris in 2015. Um, you know, emissions need to decline 45 percent by 2030, but they're still rising. Right. So uh, other other things, uh, other strategies for dealing with climate change uh, are obviously carbon dioxide removal. But when it comes to mechanical means of doing that, that's taking a long time. Uh, so in, in this regard, nature based solutions, that is relying on things like uh, whether it's afforestation, planting a lot of trees or restoring damaged ecosystems is incredibly important for climate change. But I have to say that there's so much more at stake um, in the struggle to preserve Earth's biodiversity than that. Uh, it's really uh, about uh, a huge number of benefits that we get from nature, from you know the the, the insects uh, and bats and other things that pollinate our crops, uh, to watersheds that basically help purify uh, our water and make sure that we have uh, things to things to drink. In fact, the uh, the World Economic Forum estimates that. 50% of global domestic product, which is $44 trillion a year, is moderately or highly dependent on the things we get from nature. So it's a big deal. And that's what the folks uh, in Montreal, uh, the 15th Conference of Parties, were trying to deal with uh, over the past couple of weeks. Oh, wow. wow. So um, on Sunday, uh, they laid out a suite of something like 23 conservation targets uh, at uh, the conclusion of, of COP15. Uh, the most prominent one, the measure placing uh, broad areas of land and sea under protection, known as the 30 by 30, uh, was agreed to, uh, I'm assuming, to be achieved by 2030. So what are the implications of that? What is it that, that the 30 by 30 agreement um, uh, hopes to achieve? I mean, this is a huge uh, step forward um, if it's implemented. Um, it basically would permanently protect 30% uh, of the 
terrestrial and marine surface of the earth, the ice-free surface, that is, um, by 2030. So yes, um, permanently protecting 30% of uh, Earth's uh, ice-free surface by by 2030. You know, today, um, you've only got really about 17% of land and 8% of oceans that have some kind of protection. Um, And actually, that protection is often very weak or somewhat qualified. So uh, this this whole notion of uh, 30%, which one could argue is slightly arbitrary, but the notion started in um, in 2019. There was a group of scientists who published a big paper, um, called, which they called a global deal for nature. And this was the idea that um, that there needs to be um, rather than sort of um, sort of broken up little tracts of land, there needs to be sort of really big swaths of the earth uh, protected. And not only that, that there needs to be um, some sort of uh, high percentage uh, to to basically uh, keep um, ecosystems resilient um, and and ensure that they're not always they're not contained. Late biologist um, E.O. Wilson, uh, he wrote a book a, a number of years ago called He basically called for fifty percent of the Earth's surface to be uh, permanently um, preserved. Um, that uh, that in, in is still the ambition of, of many uh, ecologists around the world, but I think they they just had a sense that well, thirty by thirty sort of rolled off the tongue and uh, and was probably a little bit more um, as a near term target was more realizable. And this was endorsed in early twenty twenty one by um, France and Costa Rica, um, and they they called they formed something called the High Ambition Coalition uh, for Nature and uh, People. And uh, so this is the this is the fruition there. Um, you know, the, the devil here is in the details, you know, which 30% of the earth do you, uh, do you, uh, do you preserve, right? There is a lot of uh, right. parts of the earth that are less biodiverse rich than others. So, uh, but, it, but it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous uh, uh, achievement, at least um, as a target. And in that 30 by 30 discussion, I take it one of the, you know, kind of, I wouldn't call it stumbling blocks, but issues is the protection of indigenous uh, rights. Right. And there was, uh, I take it, some real concern that in the effort to achieve 30 by 30, that uh, the indigenous uh, indigenous rights would be hindered or or uh, removed. So how how did they deal with that? Because I know it was a, a prominent issue in Montreal, the protection of indigenous rights. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the most innovative elements uh, of the agreement, I think. I think there's a long overdue recognition that in that indigenous peoples around the world are basically stewards for the world's biodiversity. Uh, and yet they have often, as you know, been victims of abuse, expropriation of their lands, human rights violations, obviously, even, uh, including genocide um, in, uh, in many parts of the world. So, um, you know, it turns out that although indigenous peoples um, only... Um, account for about 5% of the world's population by uh, most estimates, uh, they manage actually about 85% of the world's biodiversity, which is really sort of extraordinary. And so how do we recognize uh, that they need to be stakeholders here? And I think that's really been uh, something that was achieved in this agreement. Um, And the agreement also recognizes um, them sort of explicitly in, in multiple times during the uh, in the accord, and then it also creates avenues for sustainable use um, of these areas by indigenous peoples as well, because you know, being stewards uh, and uh, uh, 
protecting um, these areas also needs to be accompanied by the reality that, you know, in many cases, um, indigenous peoples have been harvesting uh, and um, and conducting uh, their own uh, life ways there, um, often uh, in much greater balance with the natural world, uh, if not perfect, is certainly in much greater balance with the natural world than uh, than modern industrial capitalism has done. Mm hmm. Is it simply a matter of acknowledgement or is there some effort to to underpin their stewardship as as part of the 30 by 30, particularly, obviously, yeah. the land? Area. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there's a, there's a recognition that they need to be um, at the table and the um, prime movers uh, um, uh, as stakeholders in many of the national implementation plans for this agreement. Okay, so uh, apparently the uh, the kind of the final document at, at Montreal essentially dealt with kind of six uh, decisions: uh, the Global Biodiversity Framework, the GBF, um, mon and monitoring uh, for the GBF, uh, resource mobilization, which translated means money finance. Um, the digital sequencing information, DSI, as it's called, on genetic uh, resources, capacity building and development and technical and scientific cooperation set out uh, as well, and finally, mechanisms for planning, monitoring, reporting, and review. It seems to me that, you know, one of the issues that really has come up is the fact that, you know, um, in the last agreement, um, um, uh, they, no target was achieved. And at least here we're talking about monitoring and surveillance and so forth. Do you think that they've done a significant um, upgrade, I suppose would be the term, uh, to try and build in targeting, uh, uh, monitoring and accountability uh, into this next agreement, which runs for, uh, till well, 10 years, but certainly till uh, 2030? Yeah, no, I, I think it's been, it, it, there are a couple of really big um, uh, innovations, and I think you put your finger on it. Um, one of them, um, one of the problems, as you, you pointed out in um, in uh, in the previous agreements, which set up these so-called Aichi targets, uh, which is named after uh, a city uh, in Japan where, where the agreements took place in, in, back in 2010. Um, you know, part of the difficulty was that there was no monitoring and gauge progress, right? That there are two um uh, innovations. One of them is that there's monitoring and accountability. Uh, it's still voluntary, right? Uh, the global biodiversity mm -hmm. framework, um, but uh, there is a pledge. There is, in a sense, a pledge and review mechanism akin to what was created in the Paris Agreement. And of course, the organizers of this conference wanted to have a Paris moment for biodiversity, and so they've done that, right? So. The countries will have to come back and say, hey, here's what we promised and here's how we're doing on it. The other thing is that the agreement itself overall creates concrete targets, right? Um, uh, more of the targets compared to in the past have concrete benchmarks. Uh, it's not perfect, and some of the targets are still squishy. For instance, there's no real numeric targets on endangered species. But, for instance, there are targets on you know restoring degraded ecosystems. We're supposed to make progress on 30% of those. We're supposed to reduce nutrient runoff by 50%, for instance. And we're supposed to you know have the, mm -hmm. the number of sort of new invasive species. So, um, there are some uh, major improvements here that that at least give uh, some uh, room for optimism that this is going to be a more effective agreement than the one that was um, uh, agreed in the last cycle in Japan um, in 2010. 
So, so uh, obviously, you know, it's kind of maybe a learning process, I suppose, but clearly an effort to try and 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 uh, provide the accountability and not just simply, you know, broad uh, objectives. That makes sense. And the deal reached uh, um, uh, as well included um, financing, and that was the, the uh, resource mobilization, which is, an, as I said, a nice term for money, um, that um, the hope was $200 billion a year from all sources, um, uh, governments, the private sector, philanthropy. And um, uh, uh, the U.S., I think, uh, was identified as uh, up to 30 billion per year to flow to developing countries from developed ones, right? Uh, I assume that's Europe and the United States principally. Um, uh, the the difficulty seems to be that the you know the financial commitments are not legally binding. So, you know, are, are we on a knife edge on this, Stuart? Is that as or is this? Um, uh, likely to be uh, implemented in terms of financing, because without financing, the developing countries have said there's there's no possibility of them uh, achieving the goals that are being set out. Well, you know, I, as we've seen in the climate space, uh, Alan, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, um, there have been promises, and then the delivery on those promises uh, has uh, often been um, quite delayed or not achieved. Uh, the with, with respect to climate, of course, there was a, a, a promise of $100 billion a year, which was a target that was supposed to be achieved right. by 2020. It has, still has not been achieved, although they've gotten close to it. Um, you know, no, I would say, you know, uh, this is not really adequate, right? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, even if the $200 billion that you mentioned from all sources come through, I mean, it's good that it will double uh, the overall uh, biodiversity funding, uh, conservation funding that occurs, that, that exists right now. But the Paulson Institute, which is founded by uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, estimates that there is a annual shortfall of $700 billion a year mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, in, in terms of uh, climate financing. You know, um, and so more than three times what's being identified here, right? Yeah, more exactly. Than three times. And, and, and what's exactly more than three times uh, being identified here is from all sources. Um, you know, nations right now spend an estimated four to six trillion dollars a year on nature destroying subsidies. So there is some uh, thought that um, countries can spend down, uh, excuse me, can can reduce the amount of subsidies that they spend and perhaps transfer some of that uh, into um in, in, into uh, funding for biodiversity. Um, and in fact, the agreement calls on countries uh, to reduce um, subsidies by 2030 by some $500 billion. Um, so that could go uh, uh, a decent way towards um, towards actually coming up with some of the financing or at least getting rid of, of the spending that is yeah. destroying nature. So, you know, as it's charm, you know, the issue of money almost derailed uh, the proceedings in Montreal. You know, when African countries complained that uh, the resources were inadequate, um, sort of at the 11th hour, um, uh, once again, they complained. Uh, the Chinese president of uh, of the session actually gaveled the meeting over, leading to quite a bit of outrage from uh, from, uh, for instance, a representative from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda, Gabon, and a number of other uh, countries. Um, so there's quite a lot of outrage and 
hurt feelings that need to be smoothed over, presumably with a little bit more money, uh, at least in part. I mean, generally speaking, much of the world's biodiversity uh, actually is concentrated in developing countries. So you really need a, a grand bargain, I would say, between biodiverse rich poor countries and biodiverse poor but wealthy nations and financially wealthy nations and so Mm -hmm. you know that that needs to happen another uh, question is can the private sector be incentivized or forced to protect earth's natural capital Um, and i think one of the things here that was quite interesting um, was uh, a provision in the final deal that says look um companies uh need to um uh, should be required to uh, disclose their exposure to nature-related financial, I mean, excuse me, nature-related risk, right? In the same way that, you know, a lot of um, international regulators, um, you know, the SEC in the United States and its equivalent in, in Europe are moving towards mandating um, uh, corporate disclosure of risk to uh, to climate change, right? In, in right. other words, investors should know, you know, that, that, that this is really could hurt your bottom line. Uh, in the same way, there's a, there's a there's actually been a task force on nature related uh, financial disclosures that involves a number of different uh, uh, financial institutions, and of course, you know, insurers and others are quite um, interested in this sort of thing, right? Um, and institutional investors as well. So, um, what what will be interesting to is to see. Um, whether or not national regulators actually abide by this agreement. And of course, the United States itself is not a signatory to uh, to the Convention on Biological Diversity, so it's not a signatory to this particular agreement either. Uh, but it will be interesting to see whether or not this creates a trend uh, towards greater corporate responsibility when it comes uh, to protecting the earth. Okay, um, uh, so the the you know two two kind of questions. One, you talked about subsidies. Now, I take it. Uh, let's be a little bit more precise here for the moment. When we're talking subsidies, we're particularly talking about, if I understand correctly, agricultural subsidies. That is, subsidies, for instance, in the United States to grow rice, uh, subsidies to grow cotton. Uh, that and it's not just the United States, but uh, in a variety of settings, and it's these kinds of subsidies that it's hoped, at least uh, at a minimum, are going to be taken away in order to try and support uh, the biodiversity. Am I correct in in thinking that's what what's in in yeah, behind sir. this? Yeah, certainly agricultural subsidies are front and center. There are others that have uh, also some impact on biodiversity. Oh, one of the most obvious ones, uh, of course, is uh, is fishing subsidies. And there were a few sort of modest changes at the last ministerial conference of the of uh, the World Trade Organization. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Ring. Um, yeah. Uh, but but that was really only about taking away subsidies for that 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 sort of uh, sustain uh, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. So fishing, uh, right? Yeah, fish, fishing. But that, but they're they're met. It didn't hit the mainstream fishing subsidies either. And you know, and then energy and uh, water and other types of um, of uh, subsidies can also uh, have. An, a negative impact on climate change. The di- I mean, on, on and biodiversity. But the difficulty in all of these uh, things is that you know that the vested interests <laughs> are enormous uh, in wealthy countries as well as poor countries. And so the notion of taking away these subsidies, um, you know, runs up against uh, huge problems of political will. And it's exacerbated by the fact that you know these agreements. There were no heads of state 
uh, or heads of government, with the exception of the fact that it was uh, there was a welcoming welcome from Xi Jinping videotaped. And then, um, you know, Justin Trudeau was there. But other than that, this is basically a collection of environment ministers. Now they've got to go back home and try to sell power laws and calculations are foremost. So um, this is, uh, there's some great possibilities here, including on subsidies, but the question is, is there any follow through uh, in terms of their implementation? All right. Uh, Now this is running uh, towards the the key issue, which you've raised uh, in a, in a recent publication for the Carnegie Institute for International Peace, uh, which is, um, um, uh, an important uh, you raise important questions um, uh, there in in the piece that you uh, that you publish. But before I get there, I, I just wanted to underscore one important point, um, and that is, and you kind of glancingly related to it, which is the fact that um, the United States is not. Uh, and did not ratify the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is the underpinning for uh, the the Conference of the Parties uh, that we've just seen in Montreal. Uh, And in fact, it's one of only two countries uh, that have failed to ratify uh, the convention, the other one being the Vatican. Um, I mean, and I raise it because you know, uh, I, I take it this is a Senate issue and an unwillingness on the part of the Senate to pass uh, this treaty. So where does that leave the United States? Yeah, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a classic case of American exemptionalism, as it's often called. You know, this is the tendency of the United States um, to actually be quite in the thick of things when it comes to negotiating a treaty. Um, in fact, defining many of its terms, and then only, of course, to defect at uh, at the last moment. Um, so, yeah, and so, so you know, this is you know the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity, was was one of the three treaties that came out of the Rio summit um, in 1992, and Two, right. George George H. W. Bush, um, you know, decided not to. Uh, uh, not to uh, sign it, uh, um, and but uh, Bill Clinton did and sent it to the Senate. Um, and it was reported actually out of the relevant Senate committee, 16 to three in favor. Um, but uh, Bob Dole was a Senate majority leader and he, and he declined to submit to the entire Senate um, in, a, in a pretty charged election year. So, you know, the GOP, uh, that is the Republican Party, neuralgia uh, and, uh, against treaties has just gotten worse uh, over time. And there's a lot of specious claims out there that it would somehow violate American sovereignty, allow the U.N. to govern U.S. natural resource policy or infringe on property rights, including intellectual property rights. And none of those claims uh, stand up to scrutiny. And I've written about that um, a bit. Um you know, the U.S. has strong environmental policies. Um, and so in a sense, it, it, it is the gold standard on, on much of the environmental uh, environmental protection. It also, you know, the the, the agreement um, would give nations great regulatory discretion. Um, so, you know, the United States can still participate as an observer in these things, uh, but it really forfeits mm-hmm. um, its leadership on biodiversity, which is quite sad because obviously, you know, um, it is a leader uh, in, in a lot of policy um, realms. It also 
in um, uh, in an executive order uh, signed uh, last year, um, the President Biden um, actually committed the United States to the 30 by 30 agenda domestically, uh, which is in in a, in, a, in a plan that's being coordinated by the Interior Department called America the Beautiful. Um, and but but uh, but I do think that you know it really does undercut uh, U.S. leadership on this agenda, which which is uh, which is sad. But it's some it's obviously a challenge that transcends just the environmental realm to just the uh, the incredible difficulty given the two-thirds hurdle uh, required to get um, Senate approval uh, and Senate advice and consent for uh, for treaties. Uh, it's it's just a, a, a real structural flaw, um, or at least a structural reality <laughs> that, uh, that the United States, um, that limits the United States uh, leadership in, in multilateral treaties. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. well, it leads to then back to to what I'd raised with you, which is your most recent piece, uh, and this is from uh, for Carnegie, uh, titled "To Prevent the Collapse of Biodiversity, the World Needs a New Planetary Politics," and you expand on this issue about you know uh, biodiversity, but how, you know national interests and and protection of sovereignty. You know, we were just talking about the United States' unwillingness to even um, uh, enter into the agreement, into the treaty itself. How are you possibly arguing for, you know, a new planetary politics when we can't get past the old planetary politics? Yeah, you know, it's a fair question. I mean, I I definitely am uh, pushing the envelope of the possible, uh, I would say, um, uh, tilting at windmills, others might say, but uh, but uh, I, I prefer uh, I prefer to at least, uh, I guess what I was trying to do in the piece, and it does have practical recommendations as well, was really underscore that this is not just a question of managing interdependence and how do we get sovereign nations to do that. This is really... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what both the climate and biodiversity crises have done is that they've really forced us to recognize a collision between a world divided up in 195 odd, um, you know, UN member states, um, each controlling their own territories and a, and a unified earth system that in a sense obeys no national boundaries. And it's, it's really uh, as much about the habitability of the earth um, as anything else. Um, so uh, my argument is that, you know, Look, national sovereignty is not going anywhere anytime soon, uh, but right. I think that um, that we need a new reconceptualization of how nations should define their national interests. For instance, elevating uh, concerns of biodiversity and, and and the stability of the Earth's climate. They need we need to have new conceptions of the responsibilities of sovereignty. Sovereignty has always been; it's never been. Uh, so sacrosanct or so totally fixed. It's evolved over time and it's meaning and responsibilities have evolved. So, you know, we need to think about what the obligations and responsibilities of sovereignty are. And then finally, we need to think about really how we treat Earth's natural capital assets, which we've often taken for granted. Um, you know, we, we invest in, in, in physical capital, we invest in human capital, <laughs> but, but we don't necessarily, you know, we, we basically despoil our environment. So, um, so the, in terms of whether or not, you know, wh- where we should go from here, look, no question, COP15, uh, if the thing, if, if it has, uh, you know, some significant implementation of the what's been agreed is a, it is a, it is definitely a step forward, but it's not enough. And my paper does identify several other priorities. I'll probably just, I'll just name like two or three. Um, one of them is finalizing a, a high seas biodiversity convention. Um, and this has been, um, you know, under negotiation since 2017 and, mm-hmm. um, and, and it basically would um, uh, would 
improve the uh, protection, conservation, sustainable management of the 43% of the Earth's surface that exists beyond national jurisdiction um, and uh, at sea. And uh, it's really an enormous amount of the ocean um, because Mm -hmm. it's not just the surface. It's the entire water column below. So it's about 90% of the ocean by volume. Um, And it's really... uh, uh, as we're finding out increasingly, you know, a repository of priceless biodiversity and uh, really, really important for the fate of the planet. And, uh, and yet there's a lot, there's been a lot of stumbling blocks. Um, uh, apparently the next phase uh, of the negotiations, which is the, you know, we keep thinking you're going to get at the last phase, but, um, is going to be next year. Uh, but there really needs to be, uh, uh, some forward movement on that and, and including uh, the designation of marine protected areas, uh, they're basically off limits to exploitation. You know, some some greater agreements on environmental impact assessments for things like deep seabed mining, which is real could be incredibly destructive, and then some provisions for the sharing again of of genetic and other resource marine living resources uh, in, in the high seas, which is you know again is this big issue between. You know, when, when it comes to the global commons, there, there's this notion that there's a, a the common heritage of humankind includes what happens on the high seas. So that's a, that's a big issue. Another another thing I, I think that really needs to happen is adopt a new approach to development because um, I think there's much more that donor governments and multilateral institutions can do to condition access to their resources. Uh, you know, what's happening now is that there are a lot of really sort of rapacious extractive industries from mining and other things around the world, uh, you know, timber, illegal logging, et cetera. And I think that, you know, a lot of uh, some some countries, uh, their governments are are corrupt. Other countries, um, their uh, uh, governments are well-intentioned, but, but have lacked the capacity that they need to sort of enforce these things. And in both cases, you know whether it's the sticker or or the carrot. <laughs> there are, there are things that bi- that governments can do bilaterally, or they can do through things like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and then finally, um, let me just say I think that there are a few extra um, additional trade measures that could be taken. Um, one of them, taking a page from this notion of uh, of climate clubs that the Europeans have done, is is basically um, getting together um, a, a group of like minded nations to say, look, we want to um, to uh, basically adopt um, trade policies that encourage, uh, that discourage mm. nature-destroying activities and uh, and then encourage uh, preservation of nature. Now, you have to be careful. This can sometimes seem as disguised protectionism, et cetera, but there are things that can be done there. Um, there are also um, rules that could be undertaken um, to, you know, advance trade and environmental goods. Again, defining what an environmental good is uh, can be difficult, right? Uh, does a bicycle count, right? If it, since it's not a car, et cetera. But, uh, but there are, so the devil's, again, the devil's in the details, but I think we really have to start, um, get going on, on some of these things and not consider the trade realm. Well, that's about trade. It's not about the environment. I mean, the reality is that these things are don't obey boundaries. And I think that um, the biodiversity and climate crises are, are showing just how, how interrelated uh, the mm-hmm. different parts, uh, the di- you know, different aspects of human activity are in the, on this uh, on this fragile planet we're on. Yeah, absolutely, and it, you know, obviously, we're going to intersect on on exactly those kinds of issues uh, with the Europeans now agreeing uh, promoting their carbon border adjustment mechanism, and you you raised it in your in your article as well. You know, uh, though they view this as an effort to pre- prevent. Uh, countries with high carbon outputs from uh, selling 
these um, items, particularly cement, aluminum, fertilizer, uh, electric energy production, you know, hydrogen, whatever. Um, uh, the other side says, no, 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 this is just protectionism on your part, and you're trying to prevent our goods from coming into Europe. So we're going to see this battle, it seems to me, fight itself out over the next few years. There's no question about it, uh, Stuart. Um, so I really wanted to thank you for a kind of sweeping view of what is a really complex arena uh, not, not just of uh, obviously of uh, climate change, uh, a la you know the um, the work at uh, COP twenty seven in the Paris Agreement, but also the biodiversity agreement, which I, it seems to me is has really uh, received less attention uh, over the last few years. I don't know your well, own yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely agree with you. And I mentioned before, you know, the the sort of striking uh, absence of sort of high level representation um, at, yes. um, at in in Montreal. And again, uh, however, I do think you know it is uh, increasingly coming on onto the agenda. And I think that uh, the interlinkages uh, between um, the biodiversity crisis and climate uh, are are helping propel that. But I think also it's really beginning to sink in the the staggering loss of biodiversity that um that uh, the uh that 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 humans are are witnessing and causing and and i think it also helps that, that the private sector is increasingly aware that they have a stake in this and mm-hmm. even if governments are kind of slow moving if um if companies if corporations get religion on this topic i think you know, and again, there's the, the corporate America and corporate world is quite divided on these things uh, because uh, some some uh, just like as in uh, in the climate space, some have uh, a vested interest in, in business as usual. But increasingly, yes. I think um, folks are are realizing the need to invest in, in natural capital. And once you, you know, a lot of environmentalists don't like the idea of putting a price on nature. But in in, in my view, if you don't put a price on nature uh, and you, we live in a capitalist system, people are not going to uh, not going to safeguard those assets. Uh, uh, there are many other reasons to care for the environment, but uh, but that will help incentivize folks who might not otherwise care. Appreciate all of your thoughts on this, and hopefully we'll come back to some of these as we move forward and see either progress or lack thereof and and discuss it. But thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart, for joining us in the virtual studio. Thank you so much, Alan. Uh, Look forward to being back on your show.